So the Prophet was not just a delivery man. You know, some Muslims, unfortunately, they have this belief that the Prophet was just like a mailman. He received revelation from God, he conveyed it to us, and that was it. No, but if you look in the Quran, you see that the Prophet was to, there to teach the book. Just like many of you or all of you have gone to school or are currently in school, whether it's elementary or uh, you know, post-secondary or anything in between, you could just simply go and buy the textbook or get the book from school and go home and read the book. You might understand maybe 5, 10, 20% of what you're reading. But why do you go and sit in a classroom for six, seven, eight hours a day? Because there are things in the book that you might not understand. And you need a teacher to guide you through the book. So the Muslims could have read the Quran very easily. It's in Arabiyun Mubin, as Allah says, it is a clear Arabic. But there are nuances in the Quran. There are things which are so subtle and fine that it needs a teacher to teach the book. And so the Prophet taught the book, he taught the Sunnah, the wisdom. As Allah says, وَإِن كَانُوا مِن قَبْلُوا لَفِي ذَلَالٍ مُبِينٍ The Arabs of the Arabian Peninsula were in the era of Jahiliyyah, as I talked about a few nights ago. Era of decadence. They didn't know and they didn't know that they didn't know. They were in compound ignorance. And so there had to come a teacher to refine the morality, to teach them about God to show them their responsibility. In fact, we have the hadith from our beloved Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alaihi Wasallam In which he's quoted as saying The only reason I was appointed, deputed as a Prophet was to perfect the noble moral ethics and qualities. He was there as a teacher, as a perfect example of what it means to be a human being. And in fact, even one of his wives, Aisha, when she was asked about Rasulullah, and this is a hadith al Alama Tabatabai, the late Alama Tabatabai, the author of Al-Mizan that he quotes in his book called Sunan al-Nabi. He quotes her as saying that the akhlaq of the Prophet was the Qur'an. So all of the great qualities of the Qur'an were embodied in Rasulullah. And this coming from a wife of the Prophet whom, as we know, the Qur'an has had to very harshly rebuke in chapter 66, Surah At-Tahrim. So the Prophet was the embodiment of Qur'an. He was the embodiment of the perfection of what a human being can reach to. And as our messenger, we are obviously expected to try and follow in his path to get to that level. We probably will never make it. But the goal is try to work at that level to become one who follows and is an embodiment of the teachings of the Qur'an as exemplified by the Prophet. So now when we look at the topic that I've been going over, we look at it from the point of view of Aqayyad, we've already touched upon that to an extent. We looked at, or we are going to look at Akhlaq, and on the Ahkam we've also touched upon. And obviously, you know, these are things that we learn from home, from our parents. And you'll see why I'm mentioning this as we build, build up on it. But we learn a lot of this from home, from our family. We learn about aqaid, we learn about the fiqh, we learn about morality from home. 
some of the things we're born with, it's ingrained in our life, in our blood, in our DNA. And obviously we have the majalis of Muharram and Shahrul Ramadan of other times of the year. We have the madrasa, obviously that acts as a vehicle to get these teachings out. And you know, I've just been reminded that this community also has a madrasa, which is great to see. And if parents have children of that age that are within the age of the madrasa, I would obviously strongly advise parents to ensure your children come to those sessions. Even though you may think you can teach them at home, but to be in the environment, because we know many times children don't like to learn from their parents, right? They want to be away from them. So if you have children that age, it's great to send them. They can also interact with children their age and learn about these same teachings at a deeper level that maybe as parents, you may not be able to provide to them. So one of these areas that we're looking at tonight is akhlaq, at morality. What is akhlaq though? What is the Islamic moral system all about? Well, the way that scholars define it is that they say that this is a part of our religion, akhlaq, in which it speaks or it seeks to address the inner attributes, the inner sifat of a human being, to you know, amplify and magnify the good akhlaq, the good morality, the good conduct of a believer, and to ensure that if they have any negative qualities, any of those weeds, that it basically removes them. Really, akhlaq is, you know, if you look at our life, akhlaq could be like a gardener. I'm sure many of you have homes, you have gardens, you plant flowers. Maybe you're fortunate enough, if you have good weather, to plant fruits and vegetables in your backyard. Maybe you grow tomatoes or carrots or what have you. And one of the things you would know is that when you put the seed in the ground and you, water, you, you, know, you, you get the ground ready in the spring, you have the fertilizer or whatever, you buy the plants, the, the saplings from the store, you buy the seeds, you grow the seeds in the ground. One of the things you will notice is that as the season progresses, weeds will begin to grow, right? Weeds begin to grow, so you're there on your knees, pulling the weeds out one by one. Maybe you're using pesticides, which isn't the best thing to do, because it's obviously detrimental to the health and the environment. But you'll get out there, you'll get your hands dirty to remove the weeds so that the thing you want to grow can have the ability to grow. Because the weeds will eventually suffocate the plant, take all the nutrients. It will eat away at what you're planting and you won't get your harvest at the end of the year. Akhlaq, think of akhlaq like that, that in our life, in our day-to-day -day life, we go through life, we live in this society, we live even, even in the so-called Muslim world. And every day we go out, we have weeds growing in us because we hear the haram music and a weed will grow in our hearts. We would see the haram, another weed grows in our hearts. We would, you know, maybe even listen or speak things which are inappropriate. Those weeds are growing in the heart. And a point would come if we don't clean the heart that those weeds would take it over it would completely darken and sully, sully over the heart and it would become a person who is like a living dead. You're alive, but your heart is dead. Right? You don't have it in you to be a human being anymore. And so the gardener that pulls out the weeds in Islam, we would call that akhlaq, the teachings of akhlaq. And obviously the best gardener is our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. Oh.
So, you know, that's really at one level the importance of akhlaq is, and we can never underestimate it. Unfortunately, we don't, we as in the scholarly community and the speakers, we don't give a lot of importance to akhlaq. You know, I mentioned a few nights ago in the Quran, a maximum of 500 ayat about ahkam, right? Scholars say that almost 2,000 ayat of the Quran are about akhlaq. 2,000, that's one-third of the Quran about akhlaq. One-third is also about Yom Al-Qiyamah, the Day of Judgment and Accountability. And the rest of the Quran is about Tawheed, about prophethood and other topics. But with one-third of the Quran being about morality, morals, ethics, how to be a good human being, that means that we should be stressing and making sure that we learn about the Islamic moral system. What does Islam have to say about how to lead life? You know, when you look in the Quran and you know, as we move on, you see that there are words that Allah uses. For example, He uses the word khuluk, or we call this what we're talking about, akhlaq, akhlaq being the plural. And you see, for example, when Allah describes Rasulullah, He says, innaka la ala khulukin azim. You, O Prophet, stand at the pinnacle of perfection of morality. Right? This is the character of the Prophet. And you'll sometimes you'll see in the Quran the word khalq and khulq. And they're two different things. You know, even on the day of Ashura, you'll recall when Abu Abdullah والسلام, was about to send Hazrat Ali Akbar والسلام, to the battlefield. What did he say? Addressing Allah, Abu Abdullah makes a dua, right? Allahumma shahad ala ha'ula. Oh Allah, you bear witness over these tyrants, meaning the army of Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad mal'un. Faqad baraza ilayhim ashbahun nas khalkan wa khulkan wa mantikan bi rasulik. We are sending, I am sending forth an individual who most resembles your prophet khalkan in his physical stature, khulkan in his akhlaq, wa mantikan in the way he speaks. So khalq, when you see this in the Quran, it's about our physical creation, our physical being. Khulq is about our spiritual, our, our, our akhlaq, our morality. And obviously, Allah creates us in the best of forms. The khalq of us is the best of forms. insan fi We are in the best of forms. But the khulq, that's where the challenge comes, right? Because you and I cannot be formed you know, in a petri dish. Although scientists are trying to play with chromosomes and see if they can genetically modify human beings, you know, remove, gen remove some genes that may result in deformities or handicaps. Maybe they might want to uh, create a race of people who are all blonde hair, blue eyed, you know. They might get to the stage one day to create and, and genetically modify a human being just as they genetically modify a lot of the food we eat today. But can they genetically modify the akhlaq of a human being? That's the question, right? And that's what is most pertinent and relevant is how are you as a human being, right? We don't look at the physical, right? The physical bodies are irrelevant. It's the morality, the morals, the etiquette. How are you as a person? And this is where even science has uh, come up with some really interesting research. You know, when you look at it from the point of view of um, are we born with morality or is it something we learn from our parents? 
There's a American magazine called Psychology Today. They have a website as well. They're a massive media enterprise studying sociology and psychology in the human being. And they've come to some early conclusions that a lot of what the human being recognizes as morality, as morals, as ethics, that these are actually things they're born with. They say that a lot of what human beings know as moral, morally good and bad, the moral compass, they say a lot of that is what you are born with. It's hardwired into our brain. By who? Who put it there? Did uh, you know evolution put morality in our brains that to be good and nice and fair is a good trait? No, we obviously would say that this is the fitra, this is the way Allah Azzawajal created us as human beings, we are born with certain qualities, right? We are born, even if you look at it, there's a book actually by a non-Muslim uh, academic called Born Believers. And he tries to argue that even children, when they're born, they're born believing in one God. And he has his own scientific research and evidence to prove that. You can probably find this book at the local library here in Saskatoon or purchase it off Amazon called Born Believers. So there's this notion that we are born knowing certain things. We are knowing certain things and then obviously as we grow older, we go to school, we watch television, we interact with people and things either become better for us and we learn more or unfortunately as we see in the world today that people get worse, become cutthroat, become backstabbing, they become liars. You know, we had a, a time a few years ago when the president in the United States, he would actually speak his mouth and nothing but lies would come out of it. To the point where CNN would actually have a fact checker every day and they would count the number of lies he would say every day. I'm not kidding, you can go and look this up if you don't remember the last president in America. Every day they would come on the air and say he opened his mouth this many times. This is how many lies he said. So, obviously this is an issue not only with him, but society in general. And so when we look at akhlaq, we have to recognize, brothers and sisters, that there are two streams of where we learn our, our identity, our, our, our morality, our akhlaq. We have one stream in the world today which says we believe in secular ethics. We let science, the intellect, and reason tell us what is good and bad. But you know, the problem with that is obvious, that the moral compass of humanity continues to change. Today, you may say something is good. You know, for the last hundred years in Canada, let's say, cannabis was bad. It had detrimental impact, it was illegal, it was punishable by law, you could go to jail. In America, it's still illegal in many of the states, it's a federal crime, states are regulating it or uh, legalizing it. But at a time in history, marijuana, cannabis was illegal. It's always been haram in Islam, right? Don't think that, oh, it's, it's a harmless drug. It's not like uh, crack cocaine or it's not like beer or alcohol. No, it's still a drug. It's a narcotic. It's a controlled substance. And it is haram in Islam. To smoke a joint is haram. You can't say, well, it's not in the hadith, it's not in the Qur'an, so I can, I can go out and buy my marijuana from the local dispensary and, and, and smoke it. No, it's haram. 
But look at how the morality of our society changed. At one time it was illegal, it was impermissible, you'd go to jail. Today it's allowed. People, you know, it's sold on, online, it's sold in the corner stores where they allow it. So you can see that morality will change. The ethics of society will change. They'll come up with research and say that this and this is good. Even we know that uh, marriage relationships at one time in North America, it was between man and a woman. That is the norm. It's like the bumper sticker says that God created, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Right? But today, look at how Canada has changed. They've legalized those forms of marriage and God knows where they will go in the future. Why? Because their moral compass began to shift based on the majority of people. Democracy says this, so we go with democracy. People want to do this and that. They want to live open, free lifestyles, a hedonistic life. So let's legalize everything. Let them go and do whatever they want. Or you look at the other side which is that ethics, morality, is not dictated by the majority, it's dictated by one, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And obviously taught to us by the prophets, especially our prophet, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. And in the divine teachings that Allah has given to us, which are obviously meant to get us to heaven, not only in the world to come, but in this world to have the best possible life, those teachings are cemented, they are, are, uh, they're, they're immutable, they don't, they're not going to change between the time of the third imam to the ninth imam till today, right? Things in the Quran that are haram, the moral qualities, let's say riba, backbiting, which Surah Al-Hujurat talks about, chapter 49, which is incidentally the chapter of Islamic morality. Riba has always been haram. To talk about a believer in a way that they don't like to be talked about was haram, is haram, will always be haram. And you know, just let me mention here that riba, sometimes people think, oh, it's only if I say something bad about somebody. And that is riba, obviously, and it's haram. But riba can also be if you say something to describe a person, which maybe they don't like. Let's just say, you know, you have five people with the same name in a community, five Ali's in the community, which is obviously very much possible. And you're talking to a friend, you know, I saw Ali the other day. And he's like, which Ali are you talking about? And you say, you know, Ali, the fat one. Or Ali, the guy who walks with a limp. Or Ali, the guy whose one eye is not functioning properly. That is riba according to Islam. It's haram. You're mentioning a quality obviously of him, but maybe it's something he would not like for you to say, to describe him in that way. But riba has always been impermissible and it will continue to be. The government can't come and reg regulate and change it. Even an Islamic government could never come and say, you know what, from today onwards in the... Islamic Republic of blank, you pick the country, we're going to allow riba. Hey, it's an open season, talk about whoever you want, no problem. Tweet, send messages, TikToks about people, it's okay. No, because these are fixed in Islam. We can't change them because we feel that, you know, we're progressing and we want to have freedom to say what we want. So divine ethics, which are getting, to, getting us to Allah, are fixed 
and we'll look at that more tomorrow night, but just for tonight, we have to appreciate that they're determined by Allah. The Prophet and the Ahlul Bayt taught them to us. They gave us examples on how they would uh, impact our life. And we have to learn and follow those teachings. Salu ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. We also have to realize, brothers and sisters, when it comes to akhlaq, there are two different ways we can also approach it. One is what's in the Quran, what's in the Hadith, and obviously what our scholars have given to us. And you might say, well, how am I going to learn all of the akhlaq I need? I can't go through all of those 1,000 or 2,000 verses of the Quran and find every single verse about akhlaq. And you're right. It's difficult. It's difficult for many people. You can't open up a book of Hadith and we have hundreds of books of a hadith, you're gonna say, well, how do I know where to start? And Alhamdulillah, our grand scholars have done a tremendous effort to compile books based on the akhlaq, on the morality that are embodied in the Quran and the prophetic traditions. So we have books, for example, like Jami al-Sa'adat by Mullah Naraki. Unfortunately, not in English, it's in Arabic, it's in Urdu and Persian, but there's no English, no English full translation. But then we have books like Qalb al-Salim by Shaheed Dastaghib, Ayatollah Shaheed Dastaghib Shirazi from Iran. He wrote many books. One of them is called Gunahane Kabira, available in English, The Major Sins. We have Qalb al-Salim, The Immaculate Heart, available in multi-languages. And many other books out there that give us, even the book, for example, Makarum al-Akhlaq which teach us the morality of Islam as they have taken the ayat, the hadith, sifted through everything, and then given us what we need to know. So if we can't go to the Quran directly, then these books are available. If you look on alislam.org, the biggest probably site for the Ahlul Bayt in English online, these books are there for free download, free reading. And it's up to us then to take that step and try and pick out what it is we need, what are those weeds that as I talked about earlier that are within us that we can pull out. Right? We might not read the book cover to cover. We might look through the index and say, well, you know what? I don't have jealousy in me. So I'll skip that chapter for now. But maybe I'll get to the chapter of lying. And you'll think, you know what? I, I do lie a bit here and there. I've told untruths. So let me read that chapter and see what it is that the teacher is, wants me to get to remove that weed from my life. And so in that way, brothers and sisters, you can pick and choose where you find you need more help and go to that chapter, read it, reflect upon it, try and implement it. Obviously, the goal of reading is to implement so that you can become a better human being. Salu ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. We also will realize that all of the akhlaq is not necessarily within the Quran and Hadith. Now, what I mean by that is Islam gave us universals. It didn't speak about particulars, right? So Allah says, Aqimu salat, establish the prayer. But we know that there are five daily prayers. We have Salatul Eid, Salatul Jummah, Salatul uh, Ayat, for example. So the general, the, the, the specifics were given to us by the Prophet. But then at the same time, at another level, there are things in our society, even here in, in Saskatoon, in Canada, 
which are maybe not Islamic morality, but they're considered by the Urf, the common people, as being good things to do, as being uh, things that a good person would do. You know, something as simple as you're going into a store and somebody is behind you and you keep the door open for them. There's no verse of the Quran about that. There's no hadith about keeping the door open. But you know that in our community, in our society, this is something which is done by the people because it's, logically it's something which is acceptable that somebody is walking into the, into the store or even to the center and you see them coming up behind you, you open the door for them. There's no hadith about it. But it's known in Canadian society or in, in human society, I would say, that that is how human beings act with others. So you will find many times things that are not Islamic, so to speak, but are based in the culture that we live in. Now, as long as those norms of the culture don't transgress the rules of Islam, we're okay. But if the etiquette goes against Islam, then that's where we have to draw a line. And I'll give you one example. In Muslim culture and in Western society, it's pre-COVID days, it, is, it was um, a sign of respect to shake somebody's hand. You go to the bank, you have a, a meeting with, a, with, your, with somebody in the bank, you shake their hand. You go to work, you shake the person's hand, even if it's you know, of the opposite gender, generally speaking, for non-Muslims. Right? So handshaking is a part of this culture. In some cultures in Europe, to, to hug the person is a form of respect. It's a form of their urf, of their community, the norms of the society. But as Muslims, we all know it's haram for a man to touch a woman, unless he's married to her or they're related by blood, like your mother, your sister, your grandmother, your daughter, your aunt, meaning your mom's sister or your dad's sister. Those are your maharim. You can touch them, you can hug them, you can shake their hand. But all other women, you can't touch them, you can't just... Give them a hug or a shake, even if you're going for a job interview. So in the society, it's considered normal to shake a hand of a, of a person, regardless of the gender. Again, pre-COVID. But in Islam, it's haram. So what do you do? Do you follow the norms of Canada and say, well, you know, as they say in Rome, do as the Romans? Do you just follow the norm of Canada because everybody's doing it? And that's good akhlaq, it's good etiquette, it shows respect. No, we have to see that, look, this goes against the norms of Islam. This is haram in 99% of the instances. Yes, there is a short or a small window where there is a permissibility if there is an extreme situation. But believe you me, I don't think we can ever go into that situation where it is a necessity to shake the other person's hand. Let me give you an example. This has actually happened to me maybe about 15 years ago. So I went into my local bank to get some investment work done. They assigned me an investment uh, representative at the bank, and I waited, I walked into the office, and it happened to be a woman. So she obviously puts her hand out to shake my hand, and I apologize. I said, I'm sorry, as uh, because of religious reasons, we don't have physical contact with people of the opposite gender. So she was taken aback a bit. She was kind of like, mm, that's kind of weird, but she didn't say anything. She's all right with it sat down, got business done. And then she asked me, she's like, she asked me, well, first of all, what religion I follow? So I told her I follow Islam. She said, well, what is this thing that you don't touch people of the opposite gender? So I explained to her, I said, look, as Muslims, we believe in 
that prevention is better than cure, right? Prevention is better than cure. And I said Islam does not want there to be even an opportunity for some level of illicit relationship between the genders and so it makes sure that all forms of physical contact are removed right at the beginning. Right? Just like this whole Me Too movement that started a few years ago or if you're following what, what happened to the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, in this last week and him saying, I, I, you know, I innocently kissed the woman on the cheek or I touched this or I touched that. So I told her, I said, look, as Muslims, we have these rules. And subhanAllah, she told me, she was a Christian woman, she had a cross around her neck. She told me, I don't remember her exact words, it was 15 years ago, but basically she says to me, she says, I, I respect that. She says that I wish I could do that, being a Christian, but because I work in this bank and this is a part of the culture in Canada, I'm expected to shake everybody's hand who comes into my office, otherwise I would not like to do that. So that shows us, brothers and sisters, that even Christians who follow their teachings, they have morality. They're not all open and free living, doing what they want to do. No, they have morals. Unfortunately, some Christians are away from the teachings, just as some Muslims are away from the teachings, right? I'm sure it's happened to you many times. It's happened to me where me and a Muslim friend go to a meeting and a woman will shake, I'll try to shake my hand, I'll, I'll apologize, and my Muslim colleague will shake her hand. And they know we're both Muslims. His name is Muhammad. You can't get any more Muslim than Muhammad. Right? And that's where it bites us in the end that we don't follow our own religion. And when I see that Christian woman respecting her tradition, but recognizing that she can't do that because of the situation she's in, but she wished that she could live that moral lifestyle, it shows me that we have the ability, brothers and sisters, to live morality, live the morals of Islam, and still be productive members of this society. Salu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. So as I said, and as I try to conclude the next few moments, that psychology today says people are born with ethics. And the Quran also alludes to this. You know, if you remember Surah Shams, chapter number 91, we read it in Salatul Eid every year, twice a year. In verse number 8, after Allah takes all of these qasams, وَالشَّمْسِ وَدُهَاهَا وَالْقَمْرِ إِذَا تَلَاهَا All the way all these qasams happen, he says, فَالْحَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا That Allah inspired the soul to know the bad and the good. So in a way we see in the Qur'an, just as the Psychology Today magazine has shown, that Allah inspired the humanity, the human being, ilham. It granted us that knowledge from pre-birth of good and bad. Right? So at a, at a very basic rudimentary level, these young children in front of us here on the boy's side or on the sister's side, they're all born with a pure fitra, a pure nature. They know that lying is bad, that cheating is bad, that stealing is bad, that bullying others is bad. They know all of these things. But you know, there are three problems that come up that get our children to change. They lose the moral compass. One is, unfortunately, the family. Right? The parents sometimes will ask the children to lie on their behalf. They'll say, oh, if so-and-so is calling on the phone, tell them I'm not home. 
you know. And so the kid says, my dad told me to tell you that he's not at home right now. So we teach our children to lie. That's one issue. Right? And that's one example. There are so many other issues that we teach our children. We, we destroy that fitra. The culture sometimes, it destroys our, our uh, moral compass. You know, in some cultures in the East, they have a thing called ta'aruf. If you're Iranian or Afghani, you may know what ta'aruf is. It's basically lying in a nice way. You don't want to do something, but you want to make it seem that you are being nice to somebody. Scholars have said that ta'aruf is haram. It's a, it's a form of lying to somebody because you don't mean it. Right? You mean, you say one thing, but you don't really want to give what you are uh, saying to them. So sometimes our culture corrupts us. Eastern cultures, Western cultures, wherever we be, our culture, Canadian culture may also corrupt us. Like I said about the handshaking and this and that. So either our parents corrupt us, our culture corrupts us, or the society that we live in. Right? We leave our culture from the Eastern country, we come to Canada, and we pick up, unfortunately, some of the bad habits of this society. We, take, we have to take the good when we come here, and we leave the bad. Even when we're back home, when we learn Islam, we take the good of our culture, because Islam never came to destroy culture. It came to enhance the human being and say that whenever your culture overrules religion or overrides religion, you drop the culture and you follow the religion. And so, obviously, we have to navigate all of this, you know, at the same time as praying and fasting and learning our aqaid and memorizing Quran and doing all of these things. And it becomes very daunting many times. We probably find that we don't have enough time in the day. We work 10, 12, 14 hours, and we're all in that same category, myself included. We work so hard, we come home, we're tired, we just want to kick back and watch television. But then we recognize we have religious duties, we have family responsibilities to our spouse, to our children, to our community, the religious community. And obviously to manage all of this becomes very difficult, if not impossible. And that will be a topic for the last two nights of living Islam faithfully and ethically and trying to balance our life. So I won't go too far into that. But just to close off and to remind us that Islamic morality was meant to make us better human beings. To make us the best, as it is physically we're the best that God created us. We can't improve our physical greatness. Yes, you can put makeup on. Women, that is, can put makeup on. And that too, only when their husband is around. You can improve your looks physically like that. You can do certain things. But ultimately, those will go away, right? Today, you're a young man, 18, 19. You're working out at the gym. You have the six-pack. You've got the muscles. you got, you know, a full head of hair. But you'll get old eventually. Your hair will begin to get white. It'll fall out. You'll become bald. You'll get the pot belly. But if you have akhlaq, morality, and you've ingrained it in your, in your psyche, that would never leave you. You'll always be a good person. You'll always do the right thing. You'll always treat people, Muslim, not Muslim, Shia, non-Shia. You'll treat everybody with respect. Even if they don't follow our path, you'll still respect them because at the end of the day, we live a life of Islam as taught by the Prophet, as lived by Amir al-Mu'mineen, and we have so many examples, I mentioned them in the nights before, that we live like Ali, 
And that means we live the characteristics of Imam Ali, the akhlaq of Imam Ali. Right? If he was the door to the city of knowledge, Rasulullah is the city of knowledge, Imam Ali is the gate. If the Prophet was the walking Quran, then what does that make Imam Ali? Nothing less than the way to get to the Quran. Salu ala Muhammadin wa Ali Muhammad.